I'm, good morning, everybody. Slightly uh, challenged, handicapped this morning, because when the mother-in-law is here, you have to behave. So, yes! Game on! I think it's incredible what she did. Uh, she's never flown internationally. She climbed on a plane in Johannesburg. That's a two-hour flight down to Cape Town. Cape Town, she had to sit in the plane for two hours while they upload some other people. Fly over the ocean 16 hours, 17 actually, land in Atlanta, Georgia. Those of you who have been there, that's, it's, it's a massive airport. There she had to get off, get a bag, get on a train to another terminal, climb a plane, fly to, uh, she had three hours for that, fly to um, Salt Lake City. There she had a 50, 50 minutes, 5-0, to get onto the next plane to Portland. First time international flying and she did it. We didn't know if she was going to make it. We were getting ready to drive to Salt Lake City or Georgia or rent a boat for the middle of the ocean. But she, she's here, so we're happy about that. I'm still busy with a series of Seeing the Unseen. And today the, the title is Roaring Lions Need to be Resisted. Uh, here's a verse that we spoke about two weeks ago. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Peter tells us that we need to be alert and we need to be sober-minded because our enemy, not God's enemy, our enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And I always, what I like to do is, I hear Peter says that, but obviously in his mind he has a vision of a lion that is roaring and he knew something about lions who roar. So why, why did he choose that specific animal? So I go on to Google and I do the nice search and I go find out, well, why do lions roar? Two weeks ago, if you were here, you would remember what I said. One of the reasons why they do that is to locate distant, um, um, what, do, what do you call a lion grouping? It's not a tribe. Pride, yeah. To locate distant pride members. That's one of the reasons. And number two is to signal ter territoriality. This is my territory. And I think that's significant when Peter talks about Satan. Why? Because he's what? He is the ruler of the kingdom of the air, Paul says, and he's the ruler of this world, Jesus says. And so he has a kingdom, and this is his territory. And so Peter says he's roaring. He's letting us know he's in control of this place. He's ruling this place where we live. Now, we've spoken much about that. But he's also locating distant pride members who I would say are the evil spirits that roam this earth. And so I think this is, it's apt of Peter to use this um, illustration. Rocky, it's so good to see you, my brother. I forgot you, you, I haven't seen you in a while. I'm glad you're healthy, man. It's good to see you. Um, but the next verse. So this verse says we need to be sober and we need to be vigilant and we need to be awake because this lion is running around and he's roaring and he's letting us know that he's ruling this place. Look at the next verse. Resist him. So this powerful animal, the king of the jungle, can apparently be resisted. So not only do we have to be alert of him and know what he's doing, but we need to stand against him. And then the text continues to say, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of suffering. Now, I did the same thing. I went on to the beautiful Google, and I went and asked the people who are experts, listen here, guys, how do we resist a lion? Have you ever thought about that? Like, how do you resist a lion? And I found this cool website. 
It's called WikiHow. Anyways, I thought, let me, let, me, let me go check what these guys say. And I read this and I thought it's hilarious and I want to read it to you. I've got the images for you as well. So the first thing, they actually say, yes, you can resist the lion. I mean, if you're in the wild and a lion is coming towards you, this is how you do it, ladies and gentlemen. You want some good advice? Yeah, it's coming tonight. I'm sure this happens often in your life, by the way. So he says first, so you need to stand your ground and, and then he's got some images for us. That's the first image. And, he, and this is what he says. This is the first point. Do not panic. Yeah, okay. I don't panic. If, if you are being charged by a lion, you'll be extremely frightened. Yeah, I think so. Probably. Do everything you can not to panic. Okay. Staying calm and thinking straight can help save your life. Knowing what to expect can help you stay calm. For example, know that the lion is going to growl while he's charging at you. Okay, yeah, okay, that's, that's great. If I know that, that's going to help me apparently. This can shake the ground beneath you, but no, this is normal for a lion attack. Okay, all right, thanks for the advice. Then he goes to number two. Do not run. Stand your ground. You need to take charge of the situation and show the lion that you're a threat. To be honest with you, I'm not a threat. But I have to show that I'm a threat. Turn so that you're side on side with the lion while clapping your hands, shouting, and waving your arms. This will make you appear bigger and more threatening to the lion. And then he goes over to point number three. Retreat slowly. Do not turn your back. Keep flailing your arms and showing but slowly step away sideways. If you run, the lion may sense your fear and chase after you. Remain threatening to the lion while you retreat. And avoid retreating to a thicket. Um, instead going to an open area. Good advice. Good advice. Then he goes to number four. Be prepared again. Let's say the lion doesn't move away from you. What do you do next? Well, the lion may charge you again while you're trying to retreat. Okay, thanks for the advice. If this happens, shout as loudly as possible and raise your hands again. Truly yell from the depths of your stomach. I hope people actually read this before they get charged by a lion, right? <coughs> this time, when it turns away, stop your aggression. Turn sideways and walk away. This can help avoid a fight. All right, so we're going to fight the lion potentially. Um, it's not going to be a. It's going to be a one-sided fight. Now let's say that does happen, and there's going to be an attack. This is what you do next. Remain standing. If these precautions don't work for any reason, the lion may charge. Okay, but by now you're at least prepared for the ground to shake and the growling to happen. Right? You're ready for this thing. If this happens, remain standing. The lion will likely go for your face and throat. Great, thanks for that advice. This means that it will jump and you will have a full view of the giant cat. This <laughs> on, the, on the Google. It's like, okay, let me grab my camera. This is going to be a great picture. While this sounds terrifying, it will help to have a good view of the animal. I don't know how it's going to help me if I've got a good view of the animal. It's still going to bite off my head. Anyways... If you were to crouch down, you would have much less of a chance to fight back if it attacked you at this angle. You won't believe what the next image is on the, on the little article. That's it. You're going to fight the lion today, bro. 
And the, the next point is aim for the face. When the cat jumps at you, fight back. Punch or kick the lioness as it leaps at you. Aim for the head and eyes as you continue to fight the predator off. Yeah, well, I'm going to get, I'm not. Um, who was it that killed the lion? Gideon. Do you guys remember who it was? Or was it Samson? Samson. The cat is likely to be much stronger than you. Yeah, I assume so. But use, uh, using hitting it in the head and eyes will have a great impact. Well, you haven't seen my fists, bud. Okay. And could turn the lion off of you. And here's the next image. You've survived the attack. You ran away because you punched him. And then if that happens, seek immediate help. Yeah, probably. Probably. Lion attacks have been fought off by humans before. I've not seen any of those articles, but that will be interesting. The humans that were attacked and fought off the cats were able to seek immediate medical help. I'm glad they did. Especially if the lion was able to get its jaw on you and bite you. You need to stop the bleeding. Yeah, I think that's a good idea. Tend immediately to any deep gashes, gashes from its teeth or claws. And then lastly, seek psychological help. This is such a funny article, I've got to be honest. Anyways, I thought to just share that with you to introduce um, this, this topic for us today. It is true that when you read these articles, genuinely, this is one of the only ways you're going to get away from a lion, is to actually stand your ground. That's the only way. Um, I found this, this article, in the, in, it was written in the Denver Post, and it says the following, like many sheep ranchers in the West, Lexi Fowler has tried just about everything to stop crafty coyotes from killing her sheep. She has used odor sprays, electric fences, and scare coyotes. She has slept with her lambs during the summer and has placed battery-operated radios near them. She has corralled them at night, herded them at day. But the southern Montana rancher has lost scores of lambs 50 last year alone. Then she discovered, guess which animal? The llama. The aggressive, funny looking, afraid of nothing llama. Llamas don't appear to be afraid of anything, she said. They don't appear to be afraid. They probably aren't. When they see something, they put their heads up and they walk straight forward to it. That is aggressive behavior as far as coyotes are concerned. And they won't have anything to do with that. Coyotes are opportunists and llamas take that opportunity away. The lesson this morning is a challenge for us to be llamas. Now God made beautiful things. I don't think this is one of, I'll have a conversation with him about this bad boy. Shame. It must be horrible to go through life looking like that. But I'm sure, so I suppose his strength, his strength is the ability to be confident and to take on the enemy. And I think that's where we want to go this morning. It's interesting that the psychologists say that we generally respond towards a threat in one of two ways. And you've heard this before. Fight or flight, right? When, you, when, when we talk about a lion, it's interesting that the Bible does not say either one of those two things. The Bible does not say fight. It doesn't say we need to fight Satan. We can't fight this guy. He's an angelic being. He's a cherubim. He's a million times more powerful than we are. We, we, don't, we don't fight him. But also, we don't run away from him. The text says we 
resist Him. And what we want to figure out this morning is, what does that look like? It's not only Peter that tells us that we need to resist Satan. There's another passage in the Bible. If you know where it is, you're welcome to shout it out. Where the book of James, where James tells us that we need to resist Satan as well. And if both of these authors tell us the same thing and tells us this is how you approach this, this invisible being that's, that's the ruler of the kingdom of the air, that is the, the ruler of this world, then I think there's some wisdom that we can take from that. But still the question this morning is how do we do that? And what I love about the book of James is it's perhaps one of the most practical books in the New Testament. If you're struggling to come to grips with some of the things in the Bible, you don't know which book to read, go to the book of James. It's one of the easier books, and I think it gives us some good advice on exactly how to do that. And so if you do have your Bibles with you, you can read it with me, or it will be on the screen. But if you want to revert back as I talk, then it will be easier if you've got your Bible open in front of you. James chapter 4, verse 1 to 10, it says the following. <coughs> what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but do not have, and so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, and so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive, because you ask with the wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for a spirit he has caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. And that is why the Scripture says, God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Thank you, Brother Rolly. Same topic. God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Look at the very next verse. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. As I read this text, the first question that came to my mind was this. The ruler of this world will flee from a wimp like me. That's the first question that came to my mind. How does that work? A cherubim, a killing machine, an angelic being that can kill faster than eight people per second. A... Um, Lion, a spiritual lion, a being that can shapeshift between flames and, and wind, a being that has waged war against the greatest archangel in heaven, Michael, a commander of legions of angelic beings and evil spirits, whom Paul calls the ruler of the kingdom of the air, he will run away from me, from you. How does that work? Why would he do that? Is there something about me that's incredible? I can't even chase away a normal lion. Never mind a spiritual giant lion in the other realm where God lives. 
Satan didn't flee from Michael, the archangel. He fought him. He resisted him. But this text, James is telling me, he will run away from me and you when we resist him. Why would he do that? I think if you read the text carefully, and you do read between the lines, he isn't really fleeing from us. He's fleeing from God. You see, Satan seems to fear only one person. He's not scared of us. He fears one person. One eternal being, God himself. The ruler of the universe. The demons begged Jesus. Don't throw us into the abyss. And I have a feeling that's exactly what Satan is scared of. Because that's how Revelation ends. Satan is thrown into the eternal abyss. The lake of fire. He will be destroyed by God. His time is short, remember the text said. And so he fears God. James himself says the demons shudder, right? At the presence of God. This is it. When God moves in you and around you, Satan runs away. Like a dog with his tail between his legs. When Satan is in you and around you and part of your life. We are a wonderful dog. This is, uh, I couldn't get a nicer picture. Um, I only had one picture of this bad boy. But he was a, a mix between a um, bull mastiff and some other horse type of dog. Big, big dog. And his name was, who would like to guess? Goliath. Appropriate. Goliath had a lifelong problem. He was addicted to car tires. We had an extremely um, steep uh, driveway to, from, from the bottom of the house to the top at the road, probably about 150 yards. And Goliath had this, developed this, this tremendous desire and love to uh, chase tires. So as you go up the road, you would run next to the car. And when you get to the top and you have to stop and look for traffic, in that one second when you're looking for traffic, boom, he bites the tire. I think before he moved on to the life year after, he had destroyed about 24 tires. Can you imagine the annoyance? So we tried to fix that. We tried everything. We, we uh, eventually bought a paintball gun. And as we're driving up this uphill, we shot him, which is horrible to do. I know it sounds crazy, but we shot him. We thought maybe pain will make him learn the lesson. Needless to say, sorry about this, you know, um, Unfortunately, he got a serious infection in the crown jewel area because of the vein balls, and he was castrated. Week later, he comes back home. Guess what? Old Goliath is still in the same habit. He lost his crown jewels and still didn't want to give up on the tires. And he killed a few tires later on in life as well. Now, I'm walking with old Goliath, this big giant of a dog that eats tires that's not scared of cars. He's bitten a few tires while in the run. I've never seen this dog scared of anything. And we're walking in the woods, and he's about 100, no, no, about 50 yards in front of me, and he just stands still. And he flexes his muscles, and he just stands still, and he looks to the left, and he's, he's obviously seeing something, but he won't move. I've never seen him scared of anything, but I could see he was scared this day. And I came closer and I'm about five yards away. I'm getting it. Yards. I've dropped meters. And, and there's one of these bad boys. Mozambique spitting cobra. 
This bad boy was probably about two meters long. This guy standing up in the air like this, looking Goliath face to face. Now, I've seen what these guys can do to dogs. I've been spat in the face by one of these bad boys, and it feels like there's pieces of glass in your eye. It's extremely painful. And these guys, they wreak havoc in South Africa because they come into the home, they seek heat, and they get into the beds. There's been a few cases where they get into people's beds, especially children. <laughs> the snake lovers are going crazy now. Anyways, but I'll never forget this. As I came closer and I'm walking behind Goliath, and the snake saw me. You know what the snake immediately did? Down and gone. Interesting how my presence chased that snake away. He wasn't scared of the dog, but he was scared of me. It's interesting how he picked it up so quickly. Oh, here's a human. Let me run. But the dog, he'd face the dog all day long. They had a standoff. But when I came, he ran away. And I suspect that's exactly the same as what happens in the spiritual realm. We resist Satan with the presence of God. That's how we do it. You can't resist Satan if you play around in his world. And you love his world. And you do what his world wants. The only way you resist him is by getting God into your life. Getting him into your heart. Getting him into your mind. Because Satan only has one option. He has to go. He has to leave. He will have a face-off with you every day for the whole day until God comes into the picture. And so the question that I think that we need to ask when we look at this text, going back to James, the question that we need to ask is, is who is James talking to? Well, he's talking to Christians, ladies and gentlemen. And if you read the text, you can see what these types of people were, how these Christians, what they were about. What do they do? They fight and they quarrel with each other. Do you think that they are mature? No, they're not. They're fighting and they're quarreling with each other. That's usually an indication that you're not putting God first in your life. What, do we, what else do we see? They get mad when they don't get what they want. Go read the text again. They uh, do not pray and ask God for what they want. Sometimes they do pray, but then God doesn't give it to them. Why? Because their motives are wrong. Can you see what type of Christian this is? This is a Christian that has an absence of God in their lives, but they claim to be Christian. And what's the logical result? The logical result is that they um, have Satan having a field day with them. So in a sense, they are committing adultery. They are being unfaithful to God. They are claiming that we are Christians, but they don't pray with pure motives. They fight with each other. And so they, and what else do they do according to the text? They are somehow connected with the world. And we'll, we'll see that in a moment's time. I'm reminded here of Hosea chapter 3 verse 1. Then the Lord said to me, go and love your wife again. Even though she commits adultery with another lover. This will illustrate that the Lord still loves Israel. Even though the people have turned to other gods and, um, and love to worship them. What's interesting for me and the reason why I bring up Hosea is because we need to remember that God compares our relationship with Him like, like a marriage, like a husband and a wife relationship. That's what happens in Hosea. Where God says to Hosea, I want you to go marry an adulterous wife so that you can understand how I feel about you. It feels like you're cheating on me. It is so important for us to know that when you get baptized, you sign a covenant agreement with God. 
We belong to Him. We are in an agreement with Him. And when you drift away from Him and run after other lovers, you cheat on God. That's what we pick up in this text. We are cheating on God with the world. That's what these people in the, the days of James did. They were cheating on God with the world. Doesn't the text say that? Don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? That he who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God? That's what the text says. And so you have your adulterous Christians. They call themselves Christians, but God wasn't with them. Why? Because they were dancing with the world. Ladies and gentlemen, who does that world belong to? The ruler of that world. Jesus called him the ruler of that world. And so they had a relationship with the world. And no wonder the text says, well, you need to resist Satan. Well, you're operating in his world. You can't resist him. The second thing we pick up in this text is that the Holy Spirit is, is jealous. If you read verse 5, it's an intriguing verse there. And lots of people debate about what it means. But in my opinion, the context is pretty clear. Here's a nice translation, I think. Do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit that dwells in us lusts to envy? And that also indicates to us that God's spirit that now dwells in us is really jealous of the fact that we are engaging with the world, with Satan's world, that is godless. I'm just trying to paint a picture here of what I think is going on with these people. <coughs> we are in a covenant with God. He has placed His Spirit in us. And when we think worldly, live worldly, and befriend the world, the Spirit in us is jealous, like God is jealous. And God is perhaps the only being on earth, and yes, your husband or wife, that really is allowed to be jealous. You can't be jealous. God is a jealous God. And He should be jealous because we belong to Him. That's what I think is going on here. And in this context, James says, you need to resist. People commit adultery because they've been tempted to think that the grass is greener on the other side. It's the same thing that Christians go through. We tend to think that life is better if we, and even the best, if we, if we can participate in the world, but still maintain the name of Christ in our lives. How did these people end up here? <laughs> Verse 7b answers that question. They've not been resisting Satan. They have been submitting to him. Slowly but surely he has dragged them into the world, enticed them and promised them the world. Now remember that Jesus said Satan is the ruler of the world, right? He didn't say the ruler of the cosmos. He said the ruler of the world. The areas of life that is unlike God. That's what he's referring to. To drunkenness. When you engage in drunkenness, you're operating in the world. You're not resisting Satan, you're submitting to him. Hatred. Rudeness. Being rude is godless. Aggression. Sexual immorality. Substance abuse. Gossip. Slander. Hurting people. Greed. Loving money. That's all the world stuff. Now, James tells us that if we want to avoid being in this position, 
If we want to avoid being adulterous, we need to resist the devil. That's the only way. And James is great. Practical, right? And I think he, he lays out for us five things. I'll quickly go through. Five things we do as part of this process of resisting Satan. Number one, submit to God. You resist Satan by submitting to God. I love this. That's sometimes what it feels like, and that's what it takes. Now, how can this dog do that? This dog, with everything in him, wants what? That biscuit on his nose. He can smell it. He can feel it. He can rub it with his paw. But what makes him not put it in his mouth? His respect for his owner. His respect for his... This is submission at its best. My flesh wants to do this, but I submit to my master. Therefore, I will not eat it. You resist the devil by submitting to God, obeying his voice instead of Satan's offer. Do what he says, not what you feel, not what you like, not what sounds nice, feels great and smells good. Not what is the norm. A disciplined dog listens to his master because he has made up his mind that his master is the boss of his life. And so when you still play around in the world, you haven't made up your mind that God is your master. That's as simple as it is. Satan wants you to submit to your senses, but he cannot give you eternal life. When you do submit to your senses... When you do give up, remember this. This is horrible and I don't mean, and, and I'm talking to myself. You guys know this. When you submit to Satan's world and you give in to that sin, remember these words. I'm just as good as an undisciplined dog. If that dog can say no to that biscuit, we can say no to what Satan offers to us. The only difference is we have not made up our minds to submit to God. The book of Revelation talks about this great city, the New Jerusalem. You know what he says is outside that city? Outside are the dogs. Why does he use that word? Outside are the dogs. Why not the cats? I don't know. You might say this morning, well, I need to submit to God and I need to do what He says, but I don't know like what I should do. Bollocks. We do know what God says. We know in our hearts when we are distant from Him. We know in our hearts when we do things that is unpleasing in His sight. And we know in our hearts the things that we do because we feel immediate distance from Him when we do those things. When we think those ways. When we have hatred in our hearts. When we're rude with people. We know. It distances God from us. So here's the first thing. Submit to God. Number two, humble yourself before God. Humble yourself before God. It's interesting that the word resist is used twice in this text. Once it's used in relation to us resisting Satan, we resist him, right? But where else does this word occur? The text says that God also resists. Who does he resist? Those who are full, filled with pride. Being proud means that you place yourself above others. 
It means that you think you're above others because you have more wealth. Well, I'm wealthier than you. I've got more money, so I'm better than you. Or because you're more intelligent. Well, that's a stupid person. That's pride. Well, I'm more better looking than that person. I'm more beautiful than that person. Or I'm holier than this person. I'm much better. I mean, I do stuff right. I never talk like that. I never think like that. I'm at church every Sunday. Well, you can be filled with pride going to church every Sunday. In actual fact, that's your pride. <laughs> or, you know what? I read the Bible correctly. I obey the Bible correctly. My doctrine is pure and perfect. I'm, I'm a cool cat. Be careful. God will resist you. We ask the question, why is it that the, the people that, that often tend to think the, they're the most holy and the most doctrinally correct um, seem to be so unhappy? Perhaps it's because God is resisting you. We tend to think that God just resists evil people. No, He resists all people, whether you're holy or not, all people who are filled with pride. He'll resist you. It doesn't matter if you've never set your lips on a, on a drug, never done anything wrong or said anything wrong. If you're filled with pride because of that, the text says He will resist you. Because God longs for humble people. That's what He longs for. Rather be humble before God. Bring to God your weaknesses. And you have them. I have them. Bring to God your mistakes. Bring to God your shortcomings. But before you can do that, you'll have to do some introspection. And that is where the salvation comes in. You've got to search your heart. And the text says God will do two things. He will show you favor. And He will lift you up. That's number two. Humble yourself before God and then draw near to God. Number three, if you resist God, He will resist you. If you draw near to Him, He will draw near to you because He respects your space. My grandfather was a preacher and most of the time I would um, count the bricks in the building, uh, you know, when I was a kid and, and not listen to him. But I always remember this illustration of him. He would always bring up when him and my grandmother were just married. They had this truck like this, one of these bad boys, where they had the, the single front bench. Do you guys, do, do those still exist? Brother Rolly, you probably have one of those bad boys. Yeah? Single bench. And they just get married. They get into that nice truck, drive down the road. Man, it's just kisses flying everywhere and makeup and the white dress. Oh, it's fun. It's all fun. And guess where his wife is sitting? Halfway on top of him. Halfway on top of him. 20 years down the line, guess where she sits? She, she can't get further away, man. She's like hanging on to that window on that side. You know, and, and she would say to him, what happened, babe? We used to be so touchy, kissy, lovey-dovey-doo. And he would answer to her, babes, I'm still sitting at the same place. You've moved away from me. And he always used to use that as exactly how it goes with us and God. God is always at the same place. We're the ones that shift away. 
And so if you feel God is not in your life, you have to question yourself. Have I shifted? Where's my mind? Where is my heart? So I did a little bit of research because I wanted to figure out why they changed the... Because you don't get these cars like this anymore, right? So I read, you know, gradually over the years, when did the bucket seats come in? Instead of these nice long benches. I mean, because you could put a whole family of 11 into those, you know, those front row seats. Um, so this is what they said. They say it started in Europe. European cars wanted to be a little bit more fancy. And they also wanted to cram some more convenient stuff into the car. I mean, back, back in the day, right, it was just like a gear lever here in front, and that's it. Now you have the central console, cup holders, radios, uh, you know, wh whatever, flight simulators. Everything is in here, and it's heated seats, and it's going to be nice and comfortable. Um, so it seems like comfort and gadgets was prioritized over proximity. And sometimes this is exactly the same thing in our relationship with God. We prefer comfort and gadgets over just being close to God. We get so busy with all kinds of things, we don't prioritize being close to God. And I've picked up that people struggle with this concept of drawing near to God. I'll sit with people and say, well, you know, my life is falling apart. Things are patient. Relationships aren't as good as I'd like them to be. I don't know what to do. And I'm like, James says, draw near to God. And they're like, okay, but how do I do that? Well, I, I think one of the ways it starts is maybe relationship like prayer and, and hear what God has got to say and, and, and think about what He says and things. And, and so I get the following types of comments. Um, I prayed yesterday. Like you said, you know, we got to draw close to God. So I, I prayed yesterday and I still don't have a new job. Or, you know, I read my Bible and my wife is still difficult. I read the Bible yesterday and today she's still difficult. You said draw near to God and things will just go smooth. No, that's not what I say. That's not what the text says. The text does not say read a verse and say a prayer to God so you can make your life easier and give you everything you want. That's not what the text says. This text is about relationship. If you draw near to me, I will draw near to you. If you seek me, you will find me. If you want me, you will find me. And when you have me, I'll change your heart. And your whole view of life will change. And yes, I'll throw in some cool stuff in between. We'll get you a new job. and I'm not going to get you a new wife, but I'll fix her for you. All right? But first, you need to be fixed. Number four, wash your hands. Now, I have a thing with hands. You, many of you might not have picked this up. And when you go in, in, into Africa, <coughs> and you go preach in some of these African congregations, they have this thing of, and it, it's, not, it's not the most, um, what's this, hygienic environment. If you go into some of these African villages, those guys can withstand bacteria that even bacteria cannot withstand because they've just learned to live like this. So we go in there, <coughs> go preach at the church and, Afterwards, it's like, you know, you shake everybody's hands. We get to this, this church in Kailicha, in, in this Cape Flats in Cape Town, and, and I'm busy preaching. There's probably about 100 people, and there's this one guy sitting right in front of me, and he is, I don't know if, if he had some mental disability or something, but this guy couldn't stay awake. That's the greatest encouragement to a preacher, by the way. It's like just, and this guy just sleeps, but he doesn't just sleep. This, this cat had an ability to drool. Liters, at a, gallons at a time. 
And I'm trying to preach to this cat. He's just drooling here. And, and then every now and then he'd, he'd wake up and, and he'd grab his hand and he'd catch some of that drool and, you know, just wipe it off. And, and you won't believe this day when I'm preaching, it's a special visit apparently. And the whole church makes a circle. The whole church has to shake every, the preacher's hand. Now, I have this thing about hands, right? Yeah. And so we go through the hands. Wet one, cold one, hot one, hard one, soft one. That's what's going through my mind. Every hand I shake. I'm like thinking 10 billion different types of germs, 50 million different types of germs. Um, there's no running water. And I get to this guy. <laughs> I was like, Lord, do I have to shake his hand? Can't I just give him an elbow? <laughs> And I thought to myself, by now his hands should be dry. It wasn't dry. So I drove my car home like this because there was no, there was no water and no wet wipes in those days. And, and so I didn't want to get all the stuff on my, on my steering wheel because I want to drive it tomorrow. So I drove home like this. James says, dirty hands need to be washed. Wash your, hand, your hands, you sinners. Sin makes your hands dirty. The dirt on your hands is muddy guilt. Don't you just hate feeling guilty? Do you know how to deal with that? You repent and you forget. That's how you wash your hands. You repent and you forget. You move on. But you don't ignore and forget. You repent and forget. Let's pause for a moment. What are you feeling guilty about this morning? The Lord's Supper is such a, it's usually the time I use, to be honest with you. I look back at my week and I think carefully, what is in my conscience that's eating at me? What did I do? Did, did I say something that hurt somebody? Did I think something unholy? What have I done? I want to give you an opportunity right now to wash your hands. Don't you dare walk out this building today with dirty hands. This is the great thing about God. You don't have to write an essay to apologize. You can just trust Him right now with what you've done. And He'll clean you out. Lastly, purify your heart. How do we do that? Well, Jeremiah says our hearts are deceitful above all things. Who can understand it? If I can't even understand my own heart, how can I purify it? I think James gives us help. He says, purify your hearts. Who? You double-minded. He's talking about people who haven't made up their minds. James is talking to people who cannot make up their minds whether they want to be in the world or not. Whether they want these things that Satan offers or not. They are double-minded because they have not decided. Where they want to put their hearts. And so he's saying, cut out the worldliness in your heart. Make a decision that you want God. It's so sad that we meet people who are Christians and they, you can see they haven't made up their minds whether they want God or not. Pause for a moment this morning. Do you really want God? Do you want what God can give you or do you want God? We often have to calibrate this question. Come to a point and say, do I really want God? What am I doing? Because the worst place to be 
is to be a Christian fiddling in the world and you, you never actually find God. Because you've just been a religious person. You actually don't have a relationship with God. That's the worst place to be. Because you're not going to experience the blessings of God that, you, that, he, that He wants to give you. Can you say these words? Who have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. Can we say those words this morning? I really want Him. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. How do, how do these things help us then resist the devil? When you submit to God, you won't do what Satan tempts you to do. When you humble yourself before God, He will make you stand tall against Satan. When you draw near to God, His presence will expel Satan. When you wash your hands, Satan will, Satan will have no more fingers to point at you and therefore have no legal case against you. And if you purify your heart, nothing Satan offers you will be attractive anymore. That's how you resist him. Satan suddenly becomes weak and obsolete. Let's close off. When we resist God, we draw near to Satan. Be very careful of resisting God. If you know this morning what God requires of you and you resist that, you are immediately drawing closer to Satan. The thing that makes men and rivers crooked is, the following, is following the line of least resistance. If we don't resist Satan and stand up against him, we will just fall in line with doing what he requires of us. Thirdly, call upon God for help, but row away from the rocks. Resisting Satan includes reaching out to God. It includes praying, but it also includes making good decisions, doing the right thing. And lastly, do not give place to the devil. That's actually the literal translation in Ephesians 4 verse 27. He only needs a small crack in our armor. <coughs> so I ask you to use this lesson today to go make sure that you don't have a crack in your spiritual armor where Satan can come in and have a feast.